Romans 11, verses 7 through 10. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elected obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Meredith mentioned some of our friends who are and have been shocked at what the Bible teaches regarding God and his sovereignty uh, over the salvation of individuals and this whole idea of election and predestination and the deeply unsettling implications of all this. Um, I was reading a book by a guy named J.R. Packer. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Brilliant guy. He wrote a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's not an easy read, but it's a short read if you ever want to read about all this stuff. Um, He makes the argument that in reality, there are no Christians who do not believe in God's sovereignty over the salvation of individuals. You can... You can think that there are Christians who believe in, you know, election and God's sovereignty and those who do not believe in election and God's sovereignty. J.I. Packer argues that there are Christians who believe in election and God's sovereignty over the salvation of individuals. And then there are Christians who don't yet realize that they believe in God's sovereignty over the salvation of individuals. And he puts forth a couple of questions to help tease out why he thinks that. And I'll ask you those questions, too, just to get you thinking. If you're here and you're a Christian, do you give God thanks for your salvation? Are you grateful toward God for your salvation? If so, why? Unless you believe that he had some determining influence over you becoming a Christian. If he didn't, then he doesn't really require any gratitude from you. You did it yourself. Another question to consider, do you pray for the salvation of loved ones who are not Christians? Are there people that you really care about that you pray, Lord, save them? If so, why? Unless on some level you believe that God can influence someone to become a Christian. We have been confronted with a big vision of God as we've worked through Romans. It's unsettling how God-like God is, how divine he is, how comprehensive his lordship is. But, thankfully, he is a God big enough to worship. So the question that confronts us today, if we believe that God has some control, that his sovereignty includes the salvation of individuals, what about the flip side of that coin? What about those who don't believe? What about those who reject Jesus Christ? Does God's sovereignty oversee that as well? 
Or is that outside the realm of his lordship? Those who do not believe in Jesus, is that outside of his control? He wants them to be saved, but he can't make it happen? Or is there some level of sovereign influence by God on that side of the coin as well? And I just want to note before we move through these verses, this is hard. It's not new ground for us because we've been working our way through this book, but it's hard. And I want to invite you to let the word shape you and your thinking rather than trying to let your thinking and your mind shape the word. Let it say what it says. Let it hit you with its full force and shape you. So does God have some sovereignty over those who do not believe? Paul answers very, very clearly. Let's read verses 6 and 7. Yeah, I'll I'll actually back up and read 6 to get some momentum going into verse 7, which we have on the PowerPoint. Verse 6 is the last verse we covered last week, where Paul says, If it is by grace that some are saved, the remnant are chosen. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And then in verse 7, what then? What are you saying, Paul? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Paul answers very plainly. There can be no doubt that the Bible teaches, yes, God's sovereignty is comprehensive, including over those who do not believe. This word hardened is the idea of calloused. Do any of you have calluses on your hands? Or any of you tough guys and gals who do hard work and have calluses on your hands? Or are you all wimps like me who really have no calluses because your line of work includes a lot of sitting talking, reading. I have one callus, and it's right below my wedding ring where it presses against the fat of my hand right there. Some of you guys have that? A callus is where something rubs your skin, presses on your skin enough, hard enough to where your skin just gets hardened by it. See, hearts can develop calluses just like hands can. So you have people who can live the Christian life and the church life for decades and years and years and years and decades and decades and decades. And all the while, they're being pressed and stretched and molded to look more and more and more like Jesus Christ. And with each passing month, year, decade, their old self is dying. And their new self is rising. And they look more and more and more like Jesus. They're being changed. They're being made new. And yet right beside them in the same pew can sit someone who year after year after year and decade after decade is being pressed and stretched by these same influences of God, by the same word, and yet doesn't change, is not molded, their old person does not die off, their new person does not rise, 
Instead, they grow harder and harder and harder. They're sitting under the same word being preached. They're involved in the same ministries, and yet two very, very different reactions. And what Paul is saying is, God is God over both sets of people. It's not that he's in control with these folks, but he's totally lost control over these folks. He's Lord over both, and both processes are within his control. So how do I know that it's God doing the hardening? All it says in verse 7 is that the rest were hardened. Maybe it was just a natural process. God had nothing to do with it. Well, I know that God does the hardening because of verse 8. Verse 8 says, as it is written, and then he brings together sort of a medley of Old Testament references. It says, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Now, we're not going to get into the mechanics of how can God do this because we've covered that at length. I know that not all of you were here as we worked through chapter 9 of Romans. I encourage you to go back, read chapter 9. Paul addresses some of the questions that come up at this thought. How can God be just and do this? How can man be responsible? If God is like this, we've worked through that. So I'm not going to work through that again this morning. Uh, I put all my sermon recaps up on the church website. If you want to go look at it there, or you can ask me about it anytime. Read Romans chapter 9. But today we're concerning ourselves with verses 8 through 10 of chapter 11. And in these verses, Paul gives us a three-point portrait of what a hardened person looks like. So we're going to look at what the hardened person looks like. I want you to let this scripture examine you. Let it be a mirror in front of you to examine your own heart. Let it shape the way you think about the world. Let it shape the way you think about and do evangelism. But I want to pray first because we really need God's help working through these verses. Would you bow and pray with me? Ask for God's help. Father, first, we just confess that you are God alone. We are not God. You are the creator. We are the creation. Our understanding is limited. Our ability to understand you is is limited. But you've revealed yourself to us, and I pray that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear and an ability to interact with your word, to respond rightly to it. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So, first, the hardened person has a stuporous spirit. Have any of you ever used the word stuporous? Have any of you called your siblings stuporous? Now you can. I'm going to tell you what it means. It means pretty much what it sounds like it might mean. It's related to the word stupor, the word stupid. Uh, if you go back into the original language, it carries a connotation of the word strike in such a way that it dazes and confuses. So think of the cartoons you used to watch, or maybe you still watch them, not judging. Think of when Tom would hit Jerry, or wait, 
Tom was the cat. Jerry was the mouse. Okay, Jerry would hit Tom with a baseball bat, and like stars would fly around his head and little birds. That's sort of the connotation that the original word brings about. For God to have given them a spirit of stupor, it's a it's a spirit of uh, how to put it. It's almost like the idea of sleeping and an unawareness and a numbness and an insensitivity and a confusion all wrapped up into one idea. So the hardened person has a, a spirit about them of just numbness toward God, insensitivity toward God, an inability to grasp with any kind of clarity the things of God. They stumble through life kind of like a sleepwalker, not really feeling any anything, not really understanding anything as it relates to God. He explains what he means in that very verse. God gave them a spirit of stupor, and then describing that, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. God reveals himself, and the hardened person doesn't see him. God speaks, and the hardened person doesn't hear him. In chapter 9, Paul brings up two specific examples of this whole hardening thing. Esau and the Pharaoh. You remember the, the whole thing with Moses and the Pharaoh and the Ten Commandments? Moses says, let my people go or else. And Pharaoh says, uh-uh. And then ten horrible plagues as Pharaoh continues to harden himself and God hardens him. How could Pharaoh not see how could Pharaoh not see that this is the one true God who's bringing about plague after plague after plague, destroying the lowercase g gods that the, Egypt's, the Egyptians worshipped? How could he not, by the, at least by the fourth plague, said, okay, clearly this is God, I give up? He couldn't see because he was hardened. Now, on the flip side, the elect, those who are not hardened, are sensitive. They're clear-headed about God. They're responsive to God. When God reveals himself, they see it. When God speaks in his word, they hear it. Like Moses, you know, he walks by and there's a bush on fire. He sees it and he goes forward and he hears God's voice. And it changes him. It changes his course. And he responds to it. Now, how about you? How about you? Are you changed and molded by God? Or are you calloused and hardened by God? How many times have you heard some of the same truths of the Bible? without ever responding. Do you feel like you are experiencing a sort of a stupor where you just can't gain any clarity about God and his will for you and what he means for you in life? Or do you have clarity? 
when I stand up here and read the Bible and explain the Bible, or when you sit at home and you open the Bible up and you, and you read, do you hear God's voice? Or is it gibberish and nothing? There's two ways to hear a sermon or read the Bible. And all of you are going to do one of these two things today. You can hear one, well, there's more than two ways. Some, you know, you can sit there and think about lunch the whole time and not hear it at all. But if you hear it, you can hear it and then say, that was nice. Or, man, Matt was off today. And then walk out and go about life. Forget all about it. Doesn't change your course at all. Doesn't change the way you think about reality at all. Doesn't change what you do, how you live at all. Doesn't change how you put your faith in Christ at all. Or you hear it and you read. And it makes an impression on you. And over time, the accumulated effect of all these sermons and all these Sunday school lessons and all these devotions and all these quiet times... Over time, the cumulative effect of all that is that you are changing. So how about you? Which one are you? When is the last time you repented of something? It's been said that the Christian life is one of repentance. It's sort of the whole name of the game. God purging our sin from us. We see how we're sinful. We confess it to God and whoever we've sinned against, and we repent. And God enables us to actually change. When is the last time you repented of something? That you had to confess sin to someone? See, the calloused, the hardened, do not repent and they do not confess sin. They don't even know that they are sinning. They feel nothing. And they float through their days and their weeks and their months and their years to the end without ever any clear thought about God and eternal matters. Step two in the portrait is in verse nine. The hardened are trapped by their own table. And I'll explain what I mean by that. In verse nine, he says, And David says, and he quotes a psalm that David wrote, David, the kid that killed Goliath, David, the king of Israel. Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. See, the table for them was sort of the center of family, leisure, comfort, hospitality, entertainment. You know, they didn't have iPads. They didn't have flat screens on the wall. They didn't have Xbox. They didn't have Netflix. But they had the table. This is where they ate. It represented food and uh, full stomachs. Represented all the finer things. See, what Paul teaches is that for the hardened, these things, these good things, become a stumbling block. They become a trap. The very comforts that we enjoy can become like a bear trap clamping closed on us. You know, 
we wrestle with these, this idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And all through this, Paul lands really hard on God's sovereignty. But he sprinkles in hints that man is still responsible and is still free. And here's another one of these hints. In the latter part of verse 9, it says a stumbling block and a retribution for them. What's a retribution? It's something done in response to something someone else has already done. There's a hint in here that we're responsible for our own hardening as well. But that's not Paul's big idea. He still hammers this nail of God's sovereignty. He won't stop. So we think that if we're sinning, or if we're being disobedient, God would punish us with poverty, right? He would take away our iPads and our whatever people have. But maybe not. Apparently, at least sometimes, in retribution for people hardening themselves toward God, he gives them all this comfort. He lets them become trapped and ensnared in the comforts of this world. And it's judgment. I mean, what a horrible fate to be wrapped up in you know, watching TV or you know, going to the golf course for our whole lives and then get to the end when we're too feeble to do that stuff anymore and realize, what the heck have I been doing? I have been ensnared by comforts. I've wasted it. This is what happened to Esau. That's the other one that he refers to in chapter 9 as a practical example of hardening. I don't know if you remember this story. Esau should have had the birthright, which sort of contained, that idea of the birthright sort of contained all of God's blessings and promises to his, his people. But one day he was out hunting, and he came back home, and his brother was cooking a stew, and Esau was really, really hungry. And Jacob said, well, I'll give you some stew if you give me your birthright. And what did Esau say? All right. I'm so hungry. What is this birthright going to do me? I'm going to starve to death anyway. Here you go. Give me some stew. And very literally, he was trapped by a bucket of stew. I picture a bucket. I picture like one of those big cauldrons, like in the cartoon. The hardened are trapped by their own table. Now, on the flip side of that, the soft, the ones that God can mold, are able to enjoy comforts as a means of glorifying God. They're able to rest. But also, if they're imprisoned for the gospel's sake, they're able to sing. They have a joy that's deeper. They're not trapped by it. They don't need it. So what about you? What role does comfort and leisure play in your life? How central is it? Is there anything in this area of entertainment, culture, I mean culture, comfort, leisure, that tends to snare you, trap you, grab you and not let go of you? Is your leisure a blessing to you from God, or is it more of a retribution? Is it more of a, here, if you want all this more than me, take it. Waste your life on this. 
Are you a slave to anything in this area? So the hardened have a spirit of stupor. The hardened are trapped by their own table. And finally, the hardened just can't see. They cannot see. And we see that in verse 10. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. I was listening to NPR. I think it was This American Life. Does anybody listen to This American Life? The things that I do during the week are nothing like the things that you guys do. I got to get over to Bass Pro Shop or something. Well, they had on there this guy telling a story. He was a blind guy. He's a very independent guy who travels and he stays in hotels for his job. And he was telling what it's like to go as a blind person and try to acquaint yourself with a hotel room. He says, your first thing you do when you get in there is you start feeling along the walls. And you find the closet and you find the little area where, you know, the little tiny coffee pot is and you feel along, you find where the TV is the bed, the table where the little notepad is, the lamp, the window, the nightstand. And usually when he arrives, he wants to call his wife first, and he's telling a story about way back before cell phones. And he got to this one particular hotel room, and he was trying to find the phone so he could call his wife and tell tell her that he made it. So he feels all along, and he finds each of the tables, and he just very thoroughly searches these tables for the phone, and he can't find it. He works his way around the walls, and then he fills the coffee table, and he turns around and fills that, and then the bed over to the other wall, and the two nightstands. Can't find the phone. Eventually just has to give up. Go to bed. Doesn't get to call his wife. You know how worried wives get when they don't get their calls. So the next morning, he hears a phone ringing in his room. So he jumps out of bed, and he follows the sound, And it turns out there's a whole nother little compartment that he didn't even know about, like a sort of little miniature room. The phone was in there. But he didn't know because he couldn't see. Can you put yourself in his shoes and try to imagine what it would be like to have to feel around and grope around to do anything in life? That's the lifestyle of the hardened. Spiritually, they cannot see. It's a very practical kind of darkness. Like when your power goes out, if you don't have your flashlight handy, you got to go searching for it. You can't do anything that you want to do until you have light. It's a very practical issue. Spiritually, the hardened cannot move forward. They, they cannot orient themselves in this world. This idea of bend their backs forever. People argue about what that means. And I saw no consensus in the men that I respect who I read. So I'm going to tell you what I think, but this isn't necessarily accurate. It's just what I think from reading. I think it's referring to people bent over trying to feel their way through life forever. Unable to figure things out. Always making the wrong decision. Always getting into a mess. One step forward, two steps backwards. Now on the flip side, the soft can see pretty clearly. They can 
confess sin clearly. They can repent of sin clearly. They can make decisions and move forward as Christians clearly, not generally. I think a lot of our problem is that we think so general. We think we're going to hear Scripture sort of sprinkled onto us, and generally we're just going to be better for it. But there's clear, specific things to be done. There's clear, specific ways to respond. So think, think about yourself. Are you groping around in the dark in this life? Or are you upright, moving forward with confidence? You know, Paul describes the Christian life like a race. You know, run the race well. Are you running the race or are you off in the sidelines just trying to find the track? What's your next step as a Christian? What would it look like for you to have traction as a Christian and move forward, growing, maturing? Why is it that we have so many folks, not just in our church, but at large, who are aged Christians, who've been Christians for decades, who are not making disciples of their own children, their grandchildren, of of anybody. We have older men and women that are not coming alongside younger ones and teaching them the ways of Christ. Why not? That's what Jesus told us to do. Why are so many completely without traction? I fear it's because some of us are hardened. So just a few remarks in closing. This is not one of those fun sermons to preach full of laughs and giggles. But this is real. There are the chosen and the hardened. Which one are you? You We, our loved ones, the people working out beside us at the gym and the cars passing us on the road. Ultimately, we're going to be one or the other. Now, the last word I want to say, what do you do? I mean, if you expect, if you think that you're one of the hardened, what do you do? Years ago, I, I had a guy I was working with to try to help him get past a particular sin that he just could not stop doing, even though he wanted to. Have any of you ever had that? Some sin that you hate, but it just has control over you for a period of your life. And he recognized all this, that it's, you know, salvation and freedom from these things comes from God. And he, I remember him asking me, well, what, do, what do I do then? Do I just wait for God to do it? If you have heard these questions and you're thinking, well, I sound like a hardened person. Here's what you do. Respond now. Respond now to this. You know, Paul tortured, persecuted, and killed Christians before he was confronted by Jesus Christ on the road. He was traveling to go. He had permission to go and to drag Christians out of their homes and arrest them. And he was on his way. 
And Jesus confronted him on the road and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And, you know, Paul's face to face with Jesus. He fell down on his face. It was such an experience. He was blinded physically by it. And you can read about that in Acts 9. I, I won't read it right now. Jesus said, he said to him, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. And then he says, rise, go into this city, and I'll tell you what to do. Now, bring all this up. Paul, who wrote this letter, was transformed by Jesus Christ. This moment right now is Jesus standing in front of you on the road of your life. Confronting you. Saying, stop. Respond to me now. You know, all the books that Paul wrote begin with some form of grace to you. You know, that's how those old-timey greetings went in the Bible. You know, he says, Paul, I'm Paul writing to you. Grace to you, peace to you, grace to you. And then at the end of all of Paul's letters, they all end with some form of the phrase, grace be with you. See, the word of God has power in of itself. When I started this sermon, it was grace coming to you. Grace that can change you. It's like a scalpel and a sword. It'll cut into where the problem is and slice it out of your life. If you think you might be one of the hardened, now is the time to respond. Rise up like Jesus told Paul to do. He'll tell you what to do next. Don't worry about all that. Respond to Jesus now. Give yourself to Jesus now. Very practically, what I mean by this is speak with me before you leave this building. If you think you are one of the ones that needs to respond to Jesus now, that he's standing before confronting in your hardness, Speak with me about it before you leave this building this morning. Come up during the last song. Come up while everybody's shaking hands. Loiter outside of my office until everybody leaves. Don't leave the building before you speak to me. If this is speaking to you. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard word. Hard for me to preach, hard for many to hear. Um, I've tried to be faithful to the text, what you say. Help us now to submit to it. Lord, if there are any in this room that are not calloused and not hardened from years of religion, we praise you for that. If there are any in this room who are hardened and calloused, Lord, confront them clearly, just as clearly as Paul was confronted with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Make it plain, make it clear, enable them, us, to stop, to fall to our knees, to repent. Remove this thick callous from our hearts. Lord, please be gracious to us. In Jesus' name, amen.